Hi everyone. After a short break, we are back for our second season of TTT, the Talking Transport Transformation Podcast. As always, this podcast is brought to you by TUBI, the Transformative Urban Mobility Initiative. For the first episode of Season 2, we are having two guests for our podcast session. Today, we want to dig deeper into the topic of gender and mobility with you and our guests. Therefore, we are happy to have Ines Kafkan Kagan and Sonal Shah here with us today. Ines is Managing Director of the AEM Institute and based in Berlin, Germany. There she's working on fair and accessible mobility. Zona, on the other hand, is from Delhi, India, and she's the founder of the Urban Catalysts, an organization which deals with sustainable and equitable transport, public spaces and urban planning. Now, are you as curious as me to understand both their perspectives on the topic of gender and mobility and also how it plays out in different regions of the world? I'd say we directly switch to my colleague Lina and listen in. Hi, Ines. Hi, Sonal. Thank you so much for being with us today. It's great to have you. Thank you for having us today. That's really nice to speak about our topics. Thank you for us. Thank you. So let me start off with a question I'd like to address to both of you after each other, maybe. Um, you're both working very closely with the topic of gender and mobility, and you strongly advocate for more equitable mobility systems. When and how did you notice that this is an important topic, and what's your personal motivation to raise awareness of this issue? Maybe, Sonal, if you want to start? Yes, yeah, sure. Why not? So uh, I think this might be a slightly long answer, but... Uh, when I was studying architecture uh, in my undergraduate studies in the city of Mumbai in India, I got introduced to feminist studies and that became my entry point to seeing the built form and the city through a gender perspective. And at that time, I wasn't really exposed uh, to mobility per se but uh, more so in my daily travel when I used to take uh, the, the suburban local trains in Mumbai and I used to use the ladies, uh, the reserve ladies coach or sometimes the special ladies train as well. I wasn't aware of, of what, um, what these meant, uh, except that I used to use them and it was part of my daily life. But the, 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 a feminist lens actually helped me look at myself, uh, my household, my family, and uh, the built environment through that perspective. Mobility came much later when in my graduate studies, uh, when I studied urban planning, I began to look at gender uh, again through multiple lenses of politics, of education, and development. And what really kicks started this work was when in December 2012, a young woman, working woman, was um, raped in a bus in Delhi, and that raised such a furor. Uh, I think not only in the city, but across the country, that many transport organizations began to look at gender. And that really became the starting point for me 
kind of put a lot of the work and the readings that I had done previously into seeing how could I positively contribute to uh, the transport sector as well. So it's very much a combination for you from something that you were interested in academically or professionally, but then also experience it yourself uh, in your everyday life. So Ines, I'm wondering, what was your story? How did you come to where you are today? Yeah, um, I'm working in the field because I just don't get it. I don't understand why women and men do not have equal opportunities yet. It could be so easy. And when I grew up, I thought we all would be equal until the first stupid comments came because I was interested in topics that were not for girls or for women. And um, especially the topic of mobility is so fascinating to me because transport planners are planning for all of us But they mostly have such a narrow knowledge about societies and factors that influence our mobility and transport, like gender and diversity. And um, a friend told me in 2013 about a phenomenon that most of the users and most of the respondents in their sample were male. And he worked for a company that focused on innovative mobility and societal change. And uh, he told me that they were all wondering about this male dominance, but no one actually wanted to work on it. And I have been working on the topic of gender for more than 15 years before. I was a, um, a, a women's representative for students, my first university, and I always uh, worked in that area. So I was like really keen about what's going on there. So I was all, yep, I'm going to do it. So I started my dissertation on this topic. And here we go. Dissertation is handed in and waits to be defended. And I learned so much about the differences and even more uh, important, how to close the mobility gender gap. So I decided to found a company last year focusing on these issues. And we're going to hopefully get this topic to a broad audience to finally have it in, in practical projects that uh, it's not a niche uh, topic anymore for, for, for research or something. Yeah, so. So you raised a very important point, but then I'd like to follow up on that. You talked about um, differences or different needs of different population groups when it comes to mobility. And I know there are a lot of study on the issues. And as you just pointed out, you've also done extensive academic research on the matter. So can you introduce our listeners just to the general findings when it comes to gender specific mobility? What are the key things we need to keep in mind? Yeah, so um, I always like to start with a quote by Mary Kress. Uh, she is the head of institutional relations and summit of the International Transport Forum. And um, she said, gender is one of the most robust determinants of transport choice, even often more robust than age or income. And many studies reveal the general differences that can be found worldwide with regional differences, of course. So we know that women connect trips to complex trip chains and each trip is shorter on average because the destinations are closer to their homes and they chain them up uh, to complex radial nets around their home, while in contrast, men have a more linear um, way of traveling. And in addition to, to this uh, connection of trips, they have more trips during the day as a result of gender-typical task division in households. Because still, women are more responsible for childcare and chores like running errands. And 
I know that men take over those responsibilities more and more often as well, but we are still far from an equal task load. So this is something that, that I always get confronted with when, when they say, oh, yeah, I know someone who, who, who went on parental leave as well. And I'm like, yeah, nice. <laughs> so this is, it's, it's slowly changing, but it's like really far from equal. And because of the different tasks, there are differences in the trip purposes in terms of numbers and trips as well. And we know that women use public transport more often um, than men. And we know that they drive cars less often than men. Women walk more often. And depending on the region, they use bikes more often. Especially cycling is shaped um, by the type of uh, cycling infrastructure because women do experience transportation differently than men. For instance, safety and security play a much bigger role for women than for men. Especially in less developed countries, we find an even bigger gender mobility gap in mode choice than, for instance, in Europe. A huge role um, plays the factor affordability and the fact that women are more often captive users of public transport and have to rely on the services because they just simply cannot afford a car. But even here in Europe, we know that um, the, the first car in a household is for the man who goes to work. And the second car is usually for the woman um, to uh, run errands or something. So, but, but even in Western European urban areas, I found in my very own research that women are more concerned about sustainable mobility and are even more willing to spend more money for green options. And I find that very, very interesting. So I always say we need to get away from victimizing women and only focusing on safety and security issues, but also have a look at the positive things of female mobility to um, continue from there. Mm -hmm. So that brings me to the question, if, if what we're observing is that especially cars, private cars are used more often by men than by women. I'm wondering, Sonal, is this the same in different geographies as well? Because I know from the Indian context that um, compared to Western European countries like Germany, for example, the use of cars isn't the predominant choice of motorized transport. Do you observe the same differences or are there slight variations to what you're seeing? Yeah, I mean, I'm really glad uh, Ines sent uh, a context uh, for me to then talk about geographic differences as well. So I think uh, most of the aspects, uh, including access to a personal vehicle, um, is predominantly, um, uh, I think men have more access to a personal motorized vehicle um, or a personal vehicle in general than women. But I think... I'm going to also take a step back and, and talk about um, women as, as a category as well, uh, recognizing that I am situated uh, and a lot of my work is based in the global south, um, where a large part of women workers are actually part of the informal economy. And I think that as we talk about gender differences, uh, I think We also need to recognize uh, intersectionality um, between different groups of women. And, and, and in what ways, you know, might you ask that uh, uh, are there differences based both on income, type of occupation, age, um, and marital status as well? And some of our work is kind of alluding uh, to this So. Based on some of the work that we did, for example, in three cities in, in Kerala, we found that 
younger women, uh, those in the age groups of 18 to 24 years, for example, were more vulnerable to sexual harassment versus um, women older than 24 years. The other aspect was uh, women in the informal economy, for example, in a city like Delhi, which has 616 vehicles per thousand persons, less than 2% of women had access to a personal vehicle. And so they are not only dependent on uh, public transport and paratransit, but they're also vulnerable to any disruptions in these services as well. We also have um, found that the type of occupation makes a big difference in the way that you use different modes of transport. And for example, uh, street vendors uh, often have goods that they need to carry and they're often not allowed to travel in buses. So they then have to take paratransit services in order to make those work trips. So we also, I think, my own investigation has also led me to kind of disaggregate by uh, different identities in order to have uh, more nuanced recommendations as well. Uh, and I'm here also come, going to come to one of the biggest aspects related to the uh, gender gap in digital technologies. And our, um, our work with uh, informal women workers in Delhi found that why only 6% had access to a smartphone and less than 2% knew how to make digital payments on their phones, right? And this becomes so critical in, the, in, in, in COVID-19 times when we are talking about contactless ticketing and digital payments is how is it that you carry poor informal women workers along in any uh, proposals around uh, transport and transportation access. Uh, however, one thing that we have seen, which is quite interesting, is that when we have conducted travel diaries with uh, different groups of women, we have found that they constitute a majority of walk trips in Indian cities. And they are our pedestrians, uh, and they're often overlooked. Their first and last mile connectivity is also by walking. So um, 93% of uh, women in our sample with informal women workers walked to bus stops, for example. So we so walking is a predominant mode of transport. Cycling, unfortunately, not so much um, due to multiple reasons, access to cycles, but very importantly, access to safe infrastructure uh, for cycling. And here I also mean road safety, um, along with, uh, you know, stereotypes of, uh, you know, what a cyclist should be and being harassed on the roads as well. So I think our focus has been to see how we can also disaggregate um, women and uh, into different um, uh, identities to be able to have targeted policy responses as well. So you've now opened the topic of, of gender-specific mobility needs to a, a more wider question because you highlighted that it's not inherently gender-specific, but it has a lot to do with social status, um, income, and the role that a person plays in society, the role they take up in their everyday lives, um, and where they're sort of uh, positioned within in 
current gender structures, uh, sorry, current societal structures. And Ines also mentioned that what she's observing is that um, a typical female role or a female mobility behavior tends to be also greener. Would you then say that in order to address these issues, one way might be to support really low-cost mobility solutions, green mobility solutions, and that we would thereby automatically address also um, different gender needs in mobility? Or is am I taking this a bit too short? Am I overlooking some aspects? I think green mobility responses will need to be uh, gender responsive. Uh, and I, I argue also gender transformative um, in order to cater to the needs of women, girls, and other genders. So um, I think we would need very specific actions in order to ensure that we continue to see women's use of uh, uh, greener modes of transport. And following up on, on that question, Ines, is there, um, in your opinion, do you think that mobility only responds to existing gender relations so that we can only um, take measures or incentivize certain behaviors to um, make sure that everyone has equal access to mobility? Or do you think that the way mobility is planned can actually address also the core of why these social disparities arise? Oh, that's a good question because uh, I think that it's uh, that there there are two different approaches that you can take in order to eliminate um, disadvantages for women when it comes to mobility and transport. On the one hand, you can uh, Im like um, address differences that are there uh, and and focus on on this kind of measures to put um, to put men and women and other on an equal level. Uh, so they have the same opportunities. Um, and the other thing is to eliminate those differences that, um, that lead to the uh, obstacles or discrimination of women um, from the start. So those would typically be something that you do way before um, and someone is an adult, you do this with communication, with education, um, you make this topic visible and you uh, teach your society that men and women should have equal opportunities. And when it comes to mobility and design, it's uh, we, we, we know that only 3% of the CEOs of uh, mobility Uh, and transport-related companies are female-held. So there are only 3% women as CEOs of those companies. Uh, that shows where does the innovation, where does the transportation sector comes from, from a very male-dominated field with a very male-dominated focus. So we need to address this kind of perspective uh, and make it broaden for other people than male customers. And this is a huge issue that we're trying to solve, that um, people do not only design something from their own perspective, but think about mobility for all kinds of users. Because when you innovate something, you usually think from your own perspective and from your own need that you need to fulfill. Right. 
That's a very important point, I think. And one issue that a lot of people always raise is if you want this perspective to be more inclusive, you need to have a more inclusive group of people bringing in the perspective, meaning that more women need to be included in transport planning. So my question to both of you would be, um, how do we achieve that? How do we make sure that more women um, are included in these processes in cities, on local, regional, but also national level of planning mobility? What are your experiences? Um, I think that it is uh, important to engage with women to get them in your teams to teach them because when you have a look at the at the studies at the universities and the the ratio of men and women in those um, studies we see that there are not many women but this is an initial issue that we have to address to make this um, this study program more attractive transport planning and mobility planning for women not focusing too much on on technical details because people are supposed to use services and products and um, men tend to focus more on technical details where women tend to focus more on the picture of uh, or the whole picture of, of something of a service of a product so this is something where we um, can um, have a better share right from the start for uh, finding employees and the other thing is that um, when when you you have different um, approaches to communicate with men and women when it comes to job postings so just the terms that you use in your in your job postings when you talk about like a sexy hierarchical uh, technical detailed um, workplace then it attracts usually more men and um, if you speak more about the purpose of the whole thing of the company then you attract more women so there, there are little things um, to to get more women in teams on the um, on the one hand and then you need to have uh, networks of women because men for ages have had networks where they empowered themselves, where they had supported each other. And women are starting to build those networks right now in a very uh, successful way. The, the past year, actually, it's been an in, in increased number of networks for women um, that was established. And uh, this is something to, to empower women, to connect women to make them visible as well. And um, yeah, so we need to empower women with networks and we need to um, educate them in the fields that they can work with by making the programs more attractive for women and the workplace, of course, the work culture. So now, do you have anything to add to that or does that pretty much cover it? Um, yes, and I think I, I will actually build on what Ines said uh, is that... Um, look at it in perhaps uh, two ways. One is um, women, more women in the transport sector, meaning more women as uh, service providers, right? Uh, so this also means your bus conductors, uh, where they do exist, bus drivers, uh, paratransit drivers, and this will then require uh, policy finance, infrastructure, and uh, reforms uh, along with uh, more gender equitable work cultures. And when we talk about um, women as, if you will, technical professionals, as transport planners, uh, as and, and so on and so forth, I think we, we probably need multiple things. Um, one is how is it that we can have 
courses on gender and mobility in existing transport planning courses so that um, when we have professionals who are graduating, they do have an understanding of the differences in mobility uh, across different socioeconomic parameters, right? So uh, I think they at least develop a sensitivity. Uh, and then, of course, as uh, Ines mentioned, that can we uh, make the sector more attractive uh, for uh, women and other genders? Uh, for us, for example, we are uh, five uh we are about a five-member team and uh, four out of five are women. And so this is something we do in our workplace as well, is think about how we can have more women in the transport sector and how our organization can also be a place that uh, nurtures, uh, nurtures them as well. So let's let's put this to the test or let's bring in the, the female perspective quite uh, specifically. I'd like for my last question today to ask both of you, What is the most memorable example for gender-specific discrimination in the mobility system that you've experienced? So this could be in your hometown or anywhere else. Just one thing that struck you quite um, drastically. And how would you improve that? Um, personally, I had many issues trying to use public transport with my children. I have four children and um, I was uh, studying and working on the side. And uh, yeah, just to try to imagine a sunny uh, summer day in August and all of a the sudden there was a huge rain and everyone wanted to go to the subway and uh, use the subway instead of walking. So um, I had to decide after half an hour that I'd rather walk than waiting for another subway um, because there was simply not enough space for me with a stroller and two small kids because all the people, they were already in there and no one made room for us. So this was uh, like really an, an, um, an event that, that opened my eyes that um, although the public transport providers, they say clearly, okay, people with strollers or in a wheelchair, they are supposed to go first. No one made space. No one actually offered to help or anything. So I had to carry the whole stroller back upstairs while handling two more children and bags on the side because, of course, the elevator was broken. And yeah, so we walked um, in the rain because the others didn't want to. And when when I started to work in the field of mobility, I, I participated in a workshop that was about automated driving. And the discussion there was so mind-boggling to me because I had all those memories of me carrying a stroller and the bags up and downstairs for reaching um, the stations. So I was only thinking, why can't we fix that elevator thing before focusing on automated driving in subways or um, urban trains? And I mean, maintenance is not sexy, but it's crucial for people to being able to use public transport and providing more accessibility helps all users. So this is something where I think that we need to um, change the narrative of only focusing on new and shiny stuff on providing good services, reliable services. And yeah, that um, the, another keyword would be universal design, meaning that you consider all kinds of different users and following uh, the principles in order to to uh, reach as many users as possible and not exclude others from the start. Great. What about you, Sonal? 
Yeah. Um, so I really enjoy uh, walking. Um, but I think that one of my uh, currently unfiltered desires is to be able to cycle uh, and without fear on the roads of Delhi. Um, and I think COVID-19 has kind of, you know, uh, just brought that to the forefront as well because um, I have a home office and, uh, you know, I would like to step out and I would like to cycle, but because we don't have uh, cycle tracks um, across the city, but only in very specific areas, I'm actually afraid to, to cycle by myself so uh, my partner and I recently bought a cycle, but then I restrict myself to the um, neighborhood, uh, you know, the local streets in our neighborhoods, and I don't uh, cycle on the main roads. So I think, yeah, this is like uh, one of my, um, I think, aspirations, or I think one of my biggest wishes uh, to be able to do. Great. Thank you both so much for taking the time today. This was a lot of fun and really insightful to learn about, you know, some of the differences, but mostly uh, the similarities of gender specific needs in the mobility sector. Um, I hope we'll be following up with the both of you on your work on that PhD thesis as well, Ines, and hope to have you back with us uh, one of these days again. Thanks so much, both of you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Lena. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Sonal, Ines and Lina for this discussion on gender and mobility. You really gave us a better understanding about what lies at the heart of mobility needs and our current systems. Unfortunately, this topic was often neglected in the past, but we're happy to see that not only awareness is emphasized more and more, but also actual improvements in gender disparities in urban planning around the globe can be observed. We hope you all enjoyed today's episode. Make sure to stay tuned in and don't miss out on more sustainable mobility developments around the world by following our social media channels. From now on, we will release a new episode every month. So thanks for tuning in and see you next time.